Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. So I think what's most important to realize is that whether it's on the left or the right, that these kind of radical forces ultimately become the same. I'm Tali Farhadian-Weinstein, and this is Hearing. Over the last couple of decades, there's been one name at the center of many of the most high-profile legal battles on issues ranging from sexual harassment to white supremacy to domestic violence to sexual assault, Robbie Kaplan. Robbie is the co-founder of the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, but long before that, she successfully argued the Supreme Court case that struck down the Defense of Marriage Act. She's representing writer E. Jean Carroll in her sexual assault case against Donald Trump, and coincidentally represented last week's guest on this show, Tanya Selvaratnam. On top of her seemingly endless list of clients bringing newsworthy cases, Robbie is quoted regularly in the press by reporters seeking a source who could speak eloquently and with authority on the evolving role of lawyers in shaping the cultural conversation around the thorniest questions in law enforcement, which is exactly what you're about to hear her do on this episode of Hearing. When I think of you, I think of you as a crusader against hate and as really having dedicated yourself to using the law to change people's views, whether it's around white supremacy or homophobia or sexism or anti-Semitism. And I'm curious to know where you get your appetite for these fights. Why do you take on hate and why do you take it on through the law? I became a lawyer a very, very long time ago with what perhaps seemed like the naive impression (laughs) that you could really make change uh, by being a lawyer and through the law. And when I started my career, I was incredibly motivated by kind of the great lawyers of the time and the people I was at Paul Lyson, my mentors, people like Arthur Lyman and others who really uh, devoted themselves to not only doing the regular commercial law practice, but also having a very significant practice in the public interest. But as time passed, and as the legislative branch in our system became more and more atrophied and less and less capable of passing legislation, it became clear to me that, in fact, 
the use of the law to make social change was even in the courts was even more important. And that's maybe not a good thing. That may be a, a sign of a dysfunctional legislative system. But the Windsor case is the perfect example of that. Uh, Congress had passed this law, the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996. Bill Clinton signed it in the in the middle of the, the night, kind of with his lips pursed, not wanting to do it. The law had absolutely no impact when it was passed in 1996. No gay people were getting married anywhere in the country, much less the world. And so it was purely, a, at that time, a symbolic law intended to express, as the House report said, moral disapproval of gay people. And over time, when in 2003, uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts first uh, enacted marriage equality, it became a reality. By the time we brought the case in 2010, I think most people thought that DOMA was a bad law and was at best unfair and at worst clearly unconstitutional. But there was almost no chance of Congress doing anything about that. And so we had no choice but to do it through the courts. And Sadly, at least still today, that's very much uh, a feature in our society. So uh, let's stay on this. We'll 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 move around because I was going to ask you about Windsor anyway because I had heard, Robbie, that other lawyers have passed on this case, and I I wanted to know what you saw that you knew that this was the one that you could use to make the kind of change that you wanted. Why did you take it? So a couple of things. First of all, I think one, and this is I was part of this mistake, so I'm not pointing the finger at anyone else, but the, the LGBT rights litigators for many years had brought cases using groups of plaintiffs. And, and there was good reason for that. You wanted to kind of express the full diversity of the community and the plaintiffs. So you'd have a gay male plaintiff couple, you'd have a lesbian couple, you'd have an older couple, you'd have an African-American couple, et cetera, et cetera. And while I, I certainly see the, the value and saw the value in that, I think what none of us appreciated is that when the case is about six couples or seven couples or eight couples, the lives of the couples fade into the background. And to the public and frankly, even to the judge and the jury, the case looks like a fight between Fox and MSNBC rather than a case about people's lives. And so Eve was Eve, first of all, her spouse had died. So it wasn't even a couple at this point. She was incredibly articulate, had an incredible story. Like, you know, we all would want to have the kind of marriage that Edie and Thea had. Thea, after all, was a paraplegic for many years, and we would all want a spouse like Edie, God forbid, if that happened to us, to take care of us. And I think the thing where I probably diverged most from the LGBT groups was that I saw the tax issues in the case as a huge plus. There was certainly some concern that Edie was seen as too rich, but certainly by Manhattan standards, she isn't rich. The reason she had to pay the estate tax is because the value of her apartment in the village appreciated greatly over time, as you might imagine, but that's where her wealth came from. And I thought, given the fact that our country arguably started about a fight about taxes, I thought the fact that she had to pay such a huge $363,000 estate tax simply because the person she was married to was another woman rather than a man was the most kind of stark example of how unfair and unconstitutional the law was. And as I listen to you, you sound like Justice Ginsburg to me, who I think also understood as she did all those sex discrimination cases, you had to focus on one person 
or a couple and what the discrimination meant to them. And she also, of course, brought pocketbook cases. I think her first case involved uh, a widower who is taking care of his newborn son. And if, if the genders had been reversed, you know, he would have been able to collect uh, Social Security benefits and he couldn't because uh, his wife had died. Uh, right. I mean, these facts stay with us and they live with us. So let me, let me say this. It's unfair to Justice Ginsburg's memory to compare me to Justice Ginsburg. Oh, I don't think so. I, um, you're lined up in my mind. <laughs> I mean, maybe, and we have two things in common. I think I said we, we were both we were both short. We're both Jewish. But other than that, I can't think of anything we have in common. Um, other than her litigation strategy, there's no question in those cases was brilliant. And it was considered kind of not the standard operating procedure that civil rights groups had. And in fact, she too, if you read some of the, the literature, she too had great fights with the ACLU and other groups about how best to litigate it. And she turned out to be correct. And she turned out to be right. And I do think you carried on in her tradition. And and so now we are on the other side of Bostock and a really important, uh, really important victory in what was a uh, darkier in many ways for the LGBTQ community. And I wonder, what do you think is the next frontier? Uh, the current majority on the current United States Supreme Court take a view of religious liberty and the free exercise clause that is, at least in my view, a radical departure from how uh, both the framers looked at it and, and most people in our country have looked at it for many, many, many years. Uh, they believe that a, an individual, an employer, indeed even maybe government employees have the right, based on their personal religious beliefs, to not comply with otherwise valid and neutral laws, including valid and neutral laws that prevent discrimination against gay people. I do think we are going to see more and more erosions of rights based on this so-called religious liberty. I say so-called religious liberty. I, being a Jew, I very much believe in religious liberty, uh, but I don't believe it gives me, as a Jew, the right to discriminate against people. I certainly don't think anyone, including the justices, thinks it gives anyone a right to discriminate against anyone based on race. Um, and the same standard should apply to LGBT people. But, but I don't think most of the justices would agree with me on this. I think that you're right. And I think we just have to say this is new, right? This is not sort of uh, a resurrection of a reading of the First Amendment that has always been there. Yeah, no, it seems to me. I mean, when you look at, you know, even on establishment clause, which I've litigated, when you look at what the framers said, they believed in religious diversity and religious pluralism, but they also believed that the government itself had to be neutral as to religions. And, and again, if you look at the Supreme Court cases, they say it's religious liberty, but it's almost Christian supremacy. Because remember the case about the, the prisoner who wanted the Muslim chaplain, that they had no respect for. But when it comes to kind of very, very right-wing, anti-LGBT, anti-pro-choice, anti-women, views, they believe that those so-called religious views trump the rights of others. And, you know, Justice Rob, Ginsburg explained in, in some of her last opinions. 
Yeah. And, and since we've invoked her name, I have, you know, I'm going to invoke Justice O'Connor's name, too. And if I I wonder if you'll agree with this, but if I had to summarize her 25 years of Establishment Clause jurisprudence, what I always heard her to be saying at her best was the Establishment Clause is there to make sure that we don't use institutions of government to exclude people. It's how it makes you feel to make you feel excluded. So she understood that immediately that it was about discrimination. So let me shift gears a little bit. Uh, I want to talk to you about sex crimes and workplace harassment. And so I guess, you know, shifting onto the terrain of hatred against women. Uh, and I guess I'm just going to ask you that basic question first, which is, do you think it really is a hatred of women that underlies these offenses? Uh, that, that's above my pay grade. It does seem to be different. And, you know, I, like it's easy for me to understand racism in the sense that people look different. You don't know a lot of people who are African-American. I'm talking about a typical kind of racist. They don't really know or are close to people who are African-American. And so it's easy to consider them to be the other. I, I think one of the reasons why you see such progress in terms of LGBT rights is that it got to the point, certainly by the time we were, we were litigating Windsor, that almost every American and, and certainly almost every justice knew someone or was close to someone who was gay. And, and that made all the difference. Right. And these justices, they would testify about it. Like it was important for them to say that out loud. But, but the crazy yeah. thing for me is the one thing I know for sure is that everyone knows a woman. Right. <laughs> and is related to one. Right. Yes. And it exactly came out of one body. Pretty, right. I'm pretty sure. And so why there seems to be this incredibly deep seated pervasive hostility to women just for being women. I don't fully understand. Gloria Steinem always says it's because women can have children and men can't. And there's this fundamental kind of deep-seated jealousy about that. Again, I'm not, I haven't studied enough to be able to speak intelligently about it, but there does seem to be something. And and Robbie, I'm not a philosopher either. The reason I ask this question is because obviously I feel like we have to do something about it, as do you. You found a time's up. I'm trying to change how we prosecute these crimes. And we're always talking about addressing root causes alongside accountability and weaving those two things together. And so that's on my mind. And then the I'll ask it the question in a more, I'll shift to a more practical question, but the question about the underlying hate is still there, which is, I think we're going to agree that things can be better in how these cases are handled, right? In how, in increasing reporting rates and then doing better investigations and ultimately better prosecutions. And I want to ask you, do you think it's a capacity problem or do you think it's a courage problem or do you think it's a cultural problem. I think all three, but it probably still starts with culture. Like, you know, even me, when we, and we represent a lot of women who've been abused, and even me, and, I, and I'm sorry to have to confess to this, but when you see a problem in their story, right, that they don't get everything absolutely 100% right, or maybe they've been victimized again, you have this deep-seated fear, like, oh, my God, I won't be able to prove the case. And we have this image culturally, even I do, and I would fight very hard against it, but we have this image culturally that women who are victims have to be the perfect victim. Um, and there is no such thing. There really isn't. 
any such thing as the perfect victim. I, I saw this probably most dramatically in my representation of Amber Heard uh, in the Johnny Depp case, because people literally have this view that you can only be a victim of domestic violence if you just lay there like a raggedy end doll and do nothing. But that's not how victims of domestic violence act. They're human beings like anyone else. And they yell and they scream and they sometimes hit back. That's what you would expect someone to do. You know, if, if even I have to get over that, imagine how most other people out there feel about it. Yes. And where does this seep in, do you think? Because I, I want to know where are the places that we can do better. Is it about checking our own biases at the beginning of a case to make sure that in the same way they don't we don't expect a robbery victim to be perfect or without flaws? Uh, we we sort of approach the victim of a sexual assault in the same way? Or is it about having more courage in the face of juries? Because I, I do worry that uh, we carry this bias with us and we say, well, this jury is not going to convict because of these things. Losing where we started this conversation, which is we're supposed to use the law to change people's hearts and minds. So I think, you know, in terms of the investigation, there has to be more sensitivity. And then you can't have investigators who, don't, who aren't trained in how to deal with these kinds of cases. With juries, it, we've done a little bit of jury work on this, and I've actually been shocked to see that Time's Up and Me Too actually have made a difference with juries, and that we were hearing when we did the interviews from jurors, particularly for men, more so than women, which is actually quite dramatic. Men saying, I understand, I get that this is wrong. And you could tell that they've been influenced by all the work that's been done already by groups uh, in the wake of Me Too and Time's Up and others. That's amazing. Yeah. And and tell me more about Time's Up, Robbie, because y- you you were so purposeful, you know, you as an organization from the beginning in saying that we wanted to hear from everybody, from farming to tech, from famous to not famous, rich and poor, C-suite, entry-level job, the whole range of it. Are we hearing f- from everybody? If not, who are we not hearing from? Who are you the most worried about? So, so there's no question that, particularly in the service industries, nursing and home health um, and restaurants and all the kind of service industries that women are so prevalent in, there needs to be a lot more work done. We, we have very good reasons to believe that the rates of harassment and discrimination and abuse are super high. Um, at the top, Honestly, I think music is the industry that's most obviously has huge problems. And I think they're just starting to come out. And part of that's the culture of the music industry, you know, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll, that there was just a culture that this kind of behavior was okay and was part and parcel of being a rock star. Yeah, had something to do with making art. Exactly. And and so there's a little bit of a break with Marilyn Manson, a little bit of a crack, but I I Mm -hmm. think you're going to see a lot more of that. I wanted to ask you just a different question about because you're this this amazing defense attorney. Are there any cases you would not take or you would not defend? I mean, I hear that defense attorneys have 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 these lists. Yeah. So for one thing, I think it's very different for civil and criminal. So uh, criminal lawyers, I mean, I think there are even cases of criminal lawyers one take, but criminal everyone has a right to defense in a criminal case because the ultimate possible um implication is that you could end up in jail. And so that's a different standard. I've never done, I'm not a criminal lawyer. So those things don't apply to me. I'm a strictly civil lawyer. And I have, I think, a lot more license about what cases to take and what cases to not take. Our practice, I think, is different 
um, and very innovative in the sense that there are areas of the law like defamation and like sexual discrimination, harassment, et cetera, where we will take cases on both sides. And what guides us, honestly, is what side we think is right, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, and, and I think it makes us better lawyers because we see both sides and I think we can kind of look at the picture in a, in a more complex way. And I think it make, gives us greater credibility uh, because the fact that I will both take plaintiff's cases on, on Time's Up and Me Too Matters and defend the general counsel of Goldman Sachs, who's a woman in a case that I think is meritless, shows that we're able to make those kinds of distinctions. But saying I have a values, you know, I have values that drive us, I think gives you credibility not just with your clients, I would rather have you as my attorney knowing that you have decided to believe in me. And if you didn't, you wouldn't bring the case, but also in court, right? Because you've been very open about how you're using the legal system uh, to make the kind of change that could have been made in the atrophied parts of our government, as you said early on. And so um, you are making a declaration just by being there. Thank you. I mean, I'd like to think that. I'd like to think that. And, and again, I think that's it's a really good way to practice law because it makes you a better lawyer. And I think you're right. I think when you, we take on a case, particularly in these very kind of controversial areas like defamation or discrimination, people read correctly that we think we're on the right side. In the sexual harassment cases, uh, we are also seeing a lot of shaming, what we might even call punishment outside of the courtroom. And I wonder what you make of all of that. Is it fair? Can it be made, done in a fair way? The law itself has been a very weak tool in fighting the enormous amount of harassment and abuse and discrimination that goes on in the world. And there's a bunch of reasons why. One, class actions are really almost not permitted in this area anymore after in the wake of the Supreme Court decision in Walmart. Two, until very recently, the statute of limitations were very short. The penalties that could be obtained were very low, statutorily set very low. The standards that were prescribed, the, the pervasive, severe and pervasive standard under Title VII were very hard to achieve. And that meant that the vast majority of, of women who've been harassed and discriminated against really didn't have cases. And what changed the dynamic, what really created a revolution in it, were women brave enough to come out and say, this happened to me, even if they didn't have the case. Um, I, I don't think we can over-exaggerate the importance of that. And ironically, that in turn has led to changes in the law. So for Time's Up, because of the power of all the women coming out and saying what had happened to them and all the actresses uh, who support us, we were able to get New York to extend the statute of limitations for second and third degree rape, which believe it or not, were some of the shortest in the country before we did that. Um, you see the same thing happening civilly. New York last year changed uh, the state law to make the severe and pervasive standard much more reasonable and accommodating, consistent with New York City law, as opposed to federal Title VII law. So I, I, the answer, I think, is all of the above. We need to have those public acts of bravery um, because those public acts of bravery are what drive change. And I don't think it's about shaming any particular man, as much as it is a warning. When you talk to these women, most of them will say, I want to warn other women. I know Rachel Evan Wood said it about Marilyn Manson. I want to warn other women who might get wrapped up in Marilyn Manson to be careful. 
as I listen to you, that tracks, I think, with also how criminal law develops, right? I mean, we had to have people say one of the things that happens in a domestic violence situation is asphyxiation and choking that is not yet actionable under the law because it doesn't lead to, you know, I mean, in many cases, you really had to like completely pass out um, in order for the criminal law to have anything to say about it. And then we had some change in New York around that. And now I see a conversation um, coming up around coercive control. And actually, even some of the cases that you've cited are about that. And, you know, should that be uh, actionable either in civil law or in criminal law? We don't know yet, but maybe we have to sort of talk about it in the way that you you have said before we can answer that question. So interestingly, one of the best, I think, experts in this area, uh, psychologist of Don Hughes, has said that the two most concerning things that she sees in domestic abuse are, A, when men typically men uh, choke or try to choke or attack women around the neck. And two, when they use coercive control, who they go out with, what they do, what they wear, check their phone calls, video, you know, have taping of the house. Dr. Hughes said when she sees those two things, it's the greatest risk for serious injury or even death. And that's when she really gets concerned. Yes. And they're already there on the the checklist that really any any good police officer or prosecutor should know in making a risk assessment. Uh, these are major red flags, um, along with some other things that may not be totally obvious, like if if the couple met or when they were really young. Um, and and the question is, do we need to use them as more than just clues? And uh, but yes, I think even raising awareness and saying out loud, like these things, they can, they can lead to a, to a violent outcome um, in, in fairly predictable ways and are damaging in and of themselves. The uh, we're I, in the middle of this, Robbie. Like we're yeah. not there yet. Oh, right? not even close. Now, the thing yeah. I, keep, I keep thinking about with respect to Amber, who's become a very dear, I'm like her adopted Jewish mother now, a very dear <laughs> friend, is that Johnny Depp did all those things. You know, he, he controlled what she wore. Um, he controlled who she hung out with. He would threaten to choke her and would and go around her neck. And it, it, what's amazing to me is the fact that with someone as talented and beautiful and successful as Amber, given how hard it has been for her to fight back against this, to defend herself in these cases, to be attacked, which is another thing, hopefully when you're DA, you will look into that the way she has been attacked and abused online and these petitions up against her that she should lose her job and she should lose this, she should lose that. The fact that she had to go through that, imagine what a woman without all those resources has to go through. I mean, it's almost, you know, hard to imagine. So one of the things that I do want to do, if this is really at the very top of my agenda, is to build a bureau of gender-based violence and to put all of these things under that rubric, not because it looks right on an org chart, but because even in the course of our short conversation, we have connected things like cyber assault to domestic violence, to sexual assault, and to say all of these things have common threads. And so we should be doing um, training and awareness that runs through all of them. And the supportive resources need to be there, right? The investigators that we've talked about, the service providers and all of this. And I think that that would be radically different to set all of this aside, to not say, well, these crimes are all, you know, they all happen and we take them seriously and they're just the same as the gunpoint robbery. When you silo with one particular thing and that's all you do over and over, you can't help it. You tend to like create binders around yourself. And you don't go deep enough. So I think to say our office has a Bureau of Gender-Based Violence the same way that we have 
I don't know, a homicide bureau or a bureau of, for construction fraud, uh, because this kind of violence is its own thing. And these are the seven different ways that it happens. Gender-based hate crimes, I think, you know, also sit here. Uh, I do think would be really radical and it would force the commitment of resources. Well, you will have time's up support, I promise you that. Well, I hope so. Thank you. Uh, I want to ask you one last thing, Robbie, just to just to take a step back. And we haven't really um, talked very much about, and we'll have to save this, I guess, for another day, what you've done around to stand up against anti-Semitism and white supremacy. But I will just ask you, you, like many of us, live in lots of different worlds and you've experienced homophobia in the Jewish community, and you've experienced anti-Semitism in the progressive community where you are trying to make change. And how do you navigate all of that and stay yourself? You know, I, I, have, to make, I have a confession today. During the Clinton campaign, I hated the word intersectional. I, I thought it sounded too academic and too many syllables. And I just thought it was not a, a very persuasive argument. I was completely wrong about that. Because today, what I see is this incredible intersectionality of hate that the same people, I mean, and you see this most in, in people, the people attack me on the internet. So the people attack me on the internet, attack me for being Jewish, attack me for being gay, attack me for supporting Amber Heard, and attack me for bringing cases against Donald Trump. And it's all gotten mixed together in this horrid, noxious stew today. So I, I think the fundamental thing is hate is hate. And whether you see it on the left or you see it on the right or you see it, you know, in your hometown or you see it in, in Mississippi or Washington, D.C., the job that we have as people is to fight against that. So that's what I try to do, um, albeit imperfectly, for sure. Robbie, you're so spectacular. This was such a pleasure. Thank you I, so much. I love talking to you. Thank you. We'll keep talking. Hearing is produced in partnership with Pushkin Industries. Our producers are Sam Dingman and Camille Baptista, and our engineer is Evan Viola. Special thanks to Malcolm Gladwell and Jacob Weisberg. This podcast is paid for by New Yorkers for Tali, and Robbie Kaplan's appearance on the show does not constitute a political endorsement. I'm running to be District Attorney of Manhattan and to set a national example in delivering safety, fairness, and justice for all, especially our most vulnerable. If you like what you've heard, go to tally4da.com to learn more about my campaign. And be sure to join us for the finale of our Women's History Month interview series. Next week, I'll be in conversation with Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum, who's been one of our city's most influential progressive leaders for decades, and whose abiding belief in nonviolence defines everything she does. I hope you'll join us. I'm Tali Farhadian-Weinstein. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Hearing.